Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. What my dad did was this, right? He worked as a consultant in Manchester Royal Infirmary, and he would come home from work at about 5.30 or 6 p.m. in the evening. And then he'd go in the kitchen, my mum would give him dinner. Then he'd go upstairs, he would shave. He'd come downstairs and a car would pick him up at 7 p.m. He'd go out in that car. All night he would be doing GP house calls, maybe 50, 55 house calls during the night, all around Manchester. He'd arrive back at home at 7 a.m. Again, he'd come in, have breakfast, go upstairs and shave, then drive 40 minutes into Manchester and do his day job. So he did this for 30 years. So my dad only slept for three nights a week for 30 years. Four nights, he was out working in a car. This is why there is no doubt in my mind, Light, this is why at the age of 57, 58, my dad got sick. Chronic sleep deprivation, chronic stress leads to him getting the autoimmune disease lupus. Dad's work killed him, right? I know that. And that then influenced my mum's life, my adult life, my brother's adult life. And I don't harbor any resentment against my dad. I love my dad, right? I'm glad I cared for him so much, especially now that he's not here. I know there's nothing more I could have done, right? I got to spend so much time with him in his final years. And I cherish that because he's not here anymore. But the point is, is that my dad, he made the mistake, I think, and he had reasons for this, right? I don't know what it's like to leave my friends and my family, move halfway across the world to a different country with a different culture and a different language and start a new life. I don't know what that feels like, right? But on the outside, things look great. Dad's a consultant. Uh, We go on a nice holiday every summer. My brother and I have a nice education. I never see my dad right? Dad's not around. Dad's working. And he made this big mistake that many of us make, which is he confused success with happiness. Dad got success, but he wasn't happy. And I see that playing out. I've seen it play out in my own life lights. I've seen it play out in my patients' lives. Hey there, this is Light Watkins. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show. If this is your first time here, you are in for a treat. I interview ordinary people, just like you and me, who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who have heard about their story, or who've witnessed their work, or who've seen them in action, or who've benefited from their movement. My guest today is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. His name may ring a bell because I've been featured on his excellent Feel Better Live More podcast several times, and it's one of the top wellness podcasts in the world. Dr. Chatterjee is considered a pioneer in progressive medicine. He's been featured on television 
all over the place. He's had a show called Doctor in the House in Great Britain. He's the resident doctor on BBC Breakfast. Dr. Chatterjee is also a regular commenter on BBC Radio, and he writes prolifically, most recently publishing his fifth book, which is called Happy Mind, Happy Life, and often his books become bestsellers. Dr. Chatterjee grew up in England, and during medical school, he got a call that his dad was in the ICU, intensive care unit. He returned home to help look after his dad for the next several years, and that experience helped to shape his overall perspective on the idea of success and happiness because his dad was an immigrant. He came to Great Britain to work really hard and become successful, but he wasn't happy. And we talk a lot about happiness and we unpack it in this episode because I'm also personally very passionate about societal's ideas of happiness as it relates to how we should be thinking about happiness and success. And after achieving incredible amounts of professional success, I think you're going to find Dr. Chatterjee's views about happiness and success very enlightening throughout the conversation. So Without further ado, let's get to the episode with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee, it's an honor having you on my podcast, man. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and chat about health and wellness and happiness and stress and all the things you've been writing about. Uh, I'm super excited, Light. You've been on my show twice already. It's been a joy hanging out with you in person, recording with you. And yeah, it's my honor to come on your show. So uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was on episode number 23. I looked it up earlier. And then I came back again on episode 195. And I remember on episode 23, we shot that at that hotel down in Palos Verdes. Yeah. And it was completely off the cuff. I think you used our friend Drew's microphone and we were just yeah. in my hotel room. Or I was in your room or something like that. And we're just on the couch. Yeah. And now you're one of the biggest wellness podcasts in the world. <laughs> and there's been 172 episodes between that first one we did and the, the next one we did this past fall. I just want to kick it off by asking what you have gleaned as a very successful podcast host from having those hundreds of conversations. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that I've learned from doing the podcast now for, what, four and a half years, something like that. And there's professional things that I've learned, but there's also personal things that I've learned as well. As you asked me that question, I was drawn very much in my soul to my personal reflections of what it's done for me. I started off doing the podcast, there were 40-minute conversations, right? We're told in the UK back then that the average length of a commute in the UK is 40 minutes, that should be the length of your podcast. And I remember the first few episodes, that's how long they were. But I was dissatisfied. I, I felt, I'm just warming up here. I'm just getting going. And so I decided to break the rules and go, you know what, I'm going to go longer. I'm just going to follow my heart, follow my interests, follow my curiosity. And as it went longer, it got more popular. More and more people started to listen. And so one reflection I've had is this idea these days that everyone says that nobody's got time, right? Everything's got to be short and bite-sized. Well, I understand that. I used to think that as well. But 
my experience simply has not reflected that. I believe that podcasting, particularly long-form conversational podcasting, I think it's the modern-day campfire. I think people are starved of connection, where many of us are isolated all across the world. I mean, whatever lives we're leading, maybe we've left our communities and our, our homes for work and our family to go for you know the better life, a better job, move to the city, whatever it is. What I've realized is that long-form podcasting provides the soundtrack to people's lives. I'm currently on in the middle of my UK tour at the moment, and it's just been wonderful to meet people after each event. Yes, I'm talking about my book, but actually meeting people face-to-face afterwards and hearing their stories and the energy from them about how the podcasts have literally provided the soundtrack to their lives, to their walks, to their washing up, to them doing the ironing, whatever it might be. It's a real privilege. So I guess lesson number one is that people do have time. Of course, not everyone does, but more people have time than I think we think. And I think I've learned a lesson about trusting myself and going, well, what would I do for this podcast if it was for me? Like if nobody was listening, would I still do it? Yeah, I would. How would I do it? I do it exactly the way in which I'm doing it now. So by not trying to be someone else or do it a certain way to fit in with a certain criteria, I've found that it's really nourished me and it's nourished my audience. So that's been a very, very powerful lesson for me. Another thing that I've learned, Light, is I think for much of my life, I have tried to be someone who I'm not. Right? I've tried to fit into certain roles. I, for much of my life, have very much been driven by a need for external validation. And when I get that, or when I got, I should say, because mostly this is a thing of the past now, when I got external validation, it would help me feel something, that I was worth something. And if I didn't get it, I would feel really, really low. And the big quest for me over the past few years, and podcasting has absolutely been a fundamental part of this journey for me, is how do I start being me again? How do I be the same person off the mic as I am on the mic? And it sounds in many ways, oh, that's easy, just be yourself. Well, I think for many of us, being ourselves seems to be the hardest thing. You know, being our true self is the longest journey we sometimes have to take. And I feel when I started the podcast four and a half years ago, I think I had an idea of what should a doctor sound like on a podcast? You know, what should a doctor wear? What should... It's not that I was being dishonest. It's just that I wasn't truly being authentic. If I reflect back and week after week, bit by bit, I've been taking off the mask. I've been sharing more, being myself more. And I think episode 37 was a very powerful episode for me because it was with Dr. Gabor Mate, a wonderful Canadian doctor who you know, has become a very good friend now. And he is regarded as a leading global expert in addiction, among many other things. And I remember in that episode, I ended up sharing quite a lot about myself and struggles I've had in my life. And that was one of those episodes where for the very first time I realized, oh man, there's a lot of people listening. That was one of the first, in inverted commas, big episodes that I suddenly saw being shared everywhere. Like everywhere I looked on social media, people were sharing that episode. And I didn't realize at the time lights, but I realized reflecting back now, 
Oh, when you share, when you open up, when you are truly vulnerable with other people, people connect more. I don't have to present this image that I'm a perfect human being. I'm a medical doctor. I behave a certain way. I look a certain way. I do things a certain way. No, I'm just an imperfect human like everyone else doing the best that I can. And the more I sit with that, the more I share that, the more I get out of the conversation, the more my guest starts to share with me and the more the audience love it. And I think just to finish off this loop with the podcasting, this fifth book that I've written that I'm currently on tour with in the UK, without question, it's the best book I've written to date in my mind. And it's the most personal book I've written today. I've shared things in this book about my life, my insecurities, things that I've struggled with. I've never done that before in any of my previous books, right? I don't think I would have done that five years ago. I would have been too scared of judgment from other people. You know, what will they think if they learned this about me? But it's been incredibly freeing going through this process and going, no, I feel ready now. You know, I feel ready to share and be vulnerable. And podcasting has been a huge part of that for me. Yeah, you were one of my inspirations to get started in my podcast. And something I really loved about you and your whole, just your whole body of work is your thoughtfulness and your genuine interest, right? Because I've listened to your interviews where you were interviewing someone else. I've listened to you being interviewed by other people. And even though you tell a lot of the same origin stories, which everybody wants to know, and including myself, for our audience, you seem to never really go the stock route. You seem to always tap into what you're feeling in the moment. And I'm just curious, where does that come from? And maybe we can now go into your earlier years and talk about you as a younger person. Did you always have that thoughtfulness? Did you always have that sense of wonder about how things work and the root causes and, and just that whole disposition? Yeah, it's a great question, Light. It's something I'm not really reflecting on before, if I'm honest. And yeah, I think I was always asking questions when I was young. I always wanted to know why. Why? You know, but many kids do that, right? In fact, I guess maybe all of us are naturally like this, but maybe it's society and school that actually drills it out of us, right? I don't know if that's true, right? But it's just a hypothesis in the moment as I'm trying to answer that. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of what kids all do. Why? Why? Why is it? How did that happen? And, you know, I see this with my own kids, although they are still very curious, thankfully. You know, my son's 11, my daughter's nine. But I do have real concerns over some of the ideas that they're learning in school. I have concerns that it's less about asking questions a lot of the time and more about learning answers. And I'm just not sure how helpful that is. So I don't know where that has come from in me. I think I am naturally curious. Curiosity is certainly one of my three core values as I sit here today talking to you. If I think about what are those core values to me, curiosity is one of them. I feel I'm curious in every component of my life. If I think back to my early days as a doctor light, you know, I'm this July, I'll be 21 years of practicing as a medical doctor. And I've always loved meeting people. In fact, the reason I left specialist medicine, I did my specialist exams, I was working in kidney medicine. I moved to general practice because I didn't want to just see one part of the body for the rest of my career. I wanted to see how everything linked together, how everything was connected. But I also wanted to build up relationships with people. 
And I think one of the things I love the most about being a doctor is getting to know people. Like I'm genuinely interested in people and their story and what they've got to say. So I think it's always been there, if I'm honest. I think I was like that as a kid. And I guess podcasting in many ways has allowed me to really, really explore that. I remember like before I started my show, and I'm it's very humbling to hear that my podcast in some way was an inspiration for you because you're someone I incredibly look up to, I respect. You know, I, it was such a delight for me to be able to book you on my show for episode 23. I was super, super excited. And who are the people who've inspired me in the podcasting realm? I guess it'd be people like Rich Roll, who you very kindly introduced me to several years ago. Tim Ferriss. Like, I remember reading a blog by Tim before I started my podcast. And I remember he he said something like, I'm, I pick guests according to my curiosity. Maybe I've got that wrong, right? I can't remember it exactly. But there's something he said that if you're going to keep doing this week in, week out, you've got to be interested. And it is not easy, right? Putting out weekly episodes. And sometimes we go bi-weekly, especially with these long form conversations. You know, I research all my own guests. I don't have anyone providing me notes. I read the book. I do the research. Like, I enjoy that. People say, oh, you can streamline things, right? Get someone to do that for you. It will save you time. Well, maybe it will. But I want to live a more intentional life. And as part of that, I've been asking myself, well, what do I enjoy? I enjoy that day that I spend reading the book, going for a walk, listening to one of their interviews, trying to think of ideas. Yeah, sure, you can make a case. The business case would be get someone else to research the guests for you. But that's not what I want my experience of my own podcast to be. I want to go into the weeds. I want to uncover stuff in an interview. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe we'll go here in the conversation. So I don't really know where it comes from, if I'm honest, but I do quite like this idea that all kids are curious until we drill it out of them. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. 
Did you see the movie It's a Wonderful Life? This is a Christmas movie. It's like a black and white from like the 1940s or something like that. You know what? I think I've seen it a long, long time ago, but not where I could even remember it, if I'm honest. It's about this really good guy who he wants to go and see the world, travel the world, and just be a worldly person. And then his dad dies, and he ends up having to stay in the small town and take over the family business. But he's a really good guy, you know? And, and you kind of remind me of that in your work and, and as you, in your presence. You're like a really good guy, a really good person. You're trying to help people all the time. You have a mission of helping 100 million people. <laughs> and you put that out there very publicly. Although that was scary for me. It was scary. Of course. But you had to come back home to look after your dad, help your mom and your brother yeah. look after your dad. So let's talk a little bit about those circumstances. Because I think that's a good lead into the book that you just wrote. And you actually mentioned this in the book, just about the lifestyle that your dad led and, yeah. and how on the surface, he's successful and he's providing and doing all the things, but it didn't lead to the longevity that everybody ultimately wants for themselves. Yeah. I grew up in the Northwest of England in a place called Cheshire, which is where I live now. And when I was 18, I went to medical school in Scotland, at Edinburgh Medical School, very prestigious medical school. And I was in my third year there. I'd taken a year out of medicine to do what we call an honors degree in immunology. And basically, my dad, at the age of, I think, 57 or 58, got sick out of the blue, right? So dad was an Indian immigrant to the UK in the 1960s, worked incredibly hard. Like many people, I'll explain what I mean by hard work in just a moment. But essentially, in my early years at Edinburgh at university, my dad came down with an autoimmune disease called lupus. Now, that's very uncommon in Asian men, almost 60. It's typically in Caucasian women in kind of 30s, 40s. Of course, you always get exceptions, but that's it's not usual. And I still remember one evening I was in Edinburgh, I get a call out of the blue because Dad had been investigated. We knew something was going on. We didn't quite know what was happening. And then one night, I picked up the phone. It's my mum. She said, hey, Rongan, look, dad's in intensive care. The doctors don't think he's going to make the night. Can you get home? I was like completely shocked. I mean, what, <laughs> what do you mean? Anyway, my flatmate, Steve, he said, mate, I'll drive you. So he drove me back for our drive back to where I grew up. I went to the hospital. Dad did end up surviving. But his kidneys crashed that night, failed for good. And so he was then chained to a kidney dialysis machine for the next 15 years until dad died just over nine years ago. Now, I finished off my training in Edinburgh. I was working there for a couple of years as a junior doctor and dad was getting worse and worse. So mum and my brother were struggling to look after him. I decided to move back to the town where I grew up to help my brother and my mum look after dad's. And I still live here now because by the time dad died, I was settled. I was married. My kids were at school. And, you know, it's a nice place to live. I actually live in the place where I grew up, which in many ways, I'm interested as how that sounds to you because you live, I think, like quite a nomadic lifestyle. You travel light, you're moving. And maybe we can explore that later because I'm really interested as to the contrast there. But dad died just over nine years ago. And that was a big hole in my life. And I know for many people, for most people, you know, when one of their parents die, that's a huge moment. But it wasn't just an emotional hole 
that I had in my soul. There was also a daily physical hole because I'd see my dad three times a day in the final years. Dad was, you know, I would go round at five in the morning. I'd, I'd get dad shaved. I'd get him showered. I'd then come back to my house, try and see my wife and my little baby boy at the time, then go off to work as a doctor. I, you know, the same after work. It was, it was full on, basically. And so suddenly I had all this time. I had all this time after dad died to think. And I would just go for long walks and I would just be thinking about, you know, dad not being here, what that means. And those big, deep existential questions started to come up for me. What am I doing? Is this my life? Is it someone else's life? You know, what am I doing with my life? All these kind of things, which I honestly don't think I'd ever asked myself before. I just got on with life. I did what I thought I had to do. So I think that in a huge way has led to a lot of the realizations that I've had about what it means to live a healthy, a happy and meaningful life. The stuff that I share with my patients, the stuff that I've written about in my brand new book, But I just want to finish off what I said about dad working hard, right? Dad came to the UK in 1962. At the time, the British government knew there was a big shortage of doctors in this country. So they were recruiting doctors from countries like India. Dad came in with nothing, like many people. I'm not saying this is anything unique or anything special, but that was dad's story. And he would work hard. In his chosen field, the speciality he loved there was a lot of discrimination. And he realized after a while that actually he was never going to progress in that field. Like he was an obstetrics and gynae surgeon. I've heard since dad died that my dad was a brilliant surgeon. I didn't know that while dad was alive, right? I didn't really know that. Dad never complained about anything. He just got on with it. But he realized, he told me pretty much on his deathbed that he said, hey son, listen, I would train the local doctors, teach them how to do operations. And Two or three years later, they'd be jumping me and getting the promotions. And I kept doing this year after year. And I soon realized, oh, I get it. In this speciality, I'm never going to advance. So he moved to a speciality he frankly doesn't like at all. He didn't like, but he did it for stability, for his family, for secure pay and all that kind of stuff. And, And I respect dad for doing that. But what my dad did was this, right? He worked as a consultant in Manchester World Infirmary. And he would come home from work at about 5.30 or 6 p.m in the evening. And then he'd go in the kitchen, my mum would give him dinner. Then he'd go upstairs, he would shave, he'd come downstairs and a car would pick him up at 7pm. He'd go out in that car, all night he would be doing GP house calls, maybe 50, 55 house calls during the night, all around Manchester. He'd arrive back at home at 7am, He'd again he'd come in, have breakfast, go upstairs and shave, then drive 40 minutes into Manchester and do his day job. So he did this for 30 years. So my dad only slept for three nights a week for 30 years. Four nights, he was out working in a car. This is why there is no doubt in my mind, Light, this is why at the age of 57, 58, my dad got sick. Chronic sleep deprivation, chronic stress leads to him getting the autoimmune disease lupus. Dad's work killed him, right? I know that. And that then influenced my mum's life, my adult life, my brother's adult life. And I don't harbor any resentment against my dad. I love my dad, right? I'm glad I cared for him so much, especially now that he's not here. I know there's nothing more I could have done, right? I got to spend so much time with him in his final years. And I cherish that because he's not here anymore. But the point is, is that my dad... He made the mistake, I think, 
And he had reasons for this, right? I don't know what it's like to leave my friends and my family, move halfway across the world to a different country with a different culture and a different language and start a new life. I don't know what that feels like, right? But on the outside, things look great. Dad's a consultant. Uh, We go on a nice holiday every summer. My brother and I have a nice education. I never see my dad, right? Dad's not around. Dad's working. And he made this big mistake that many of us make, which is he confused success with happiness. Dad got success, but he wasn't happy. And I see that playing out. I've seen it play out in my own life lights. I've seen it play out in my patients' lives. And what's really interesting for me is that we talk about chronic stress. You know, a few years ago, I I wrote a book all about stress. We talk about things that we can do to help manage things like breath work and journaling and exercise. And man, I write about that. I talk about that. I'm a fan of that. But I often think like, why are so many of us stressed out and burnt out? I think it's because we are confusing success with happiness. We're chasing things that we think are going to make us happy. We think the better job, the promotion, the nicer hotel on holiday, the nicer phone, the better car, whatever it might be. Many of us think that those things are going to make us happy and we stress out, we burn out, we neglect the things that truly are going to make us happy in the process. And that's why we need all these stress management techniques. So what I want to do, and this is what chapter one in the book is about, is to ask people those questions and help them with simple exercises to say, hey, look, What are you chasing in life? Why are you chasing those things? Have you defined what success is to you or are you chasing society's definition of success? So talk about core happiness. What do you mean by core happiness as opposed to any other kind of happiness? Yeah, I think happiness is a confusing term right? And what I mean by that is you could say the word happiness to 10 different people. And I think you may well get 10 different interpretations of what happiness really means. I think one of the things that people think happiness is, is what we get sold by the world around us. You know, that billboard image of that smiling couple on a beach with their kids and the ocean behind them. And we think that's what happiness is. And I don't think that's what real, true happiness is. I think that's a pleasurable experience. It can form part of a happy life. But I don't think that's happiness in and of itself. And I do believe that every human being wants what I call core happiness, right? But I think the term happiness gets confused. So core happiness is this model I created for the new book to really try and help people understand that happiness It's a muscle that you can strengthen. It's a skill that you can develop. It's not something you have to just stumble across one day when the world around you is a certain way, when people around you treat you a certain way. Happiness is something you can train, you can get good at if you know what to work on. So core happiness, I want people to think of as a three-legged stool. Each of these three legs is separate, but they are essential. And if any of these legs starts to weaken your feelings of happiness will also start to weaken and ultimately collapse. So the three legs of this core happiness stool are the three components of happiness, and they are alignment, contentment, and control. So alignment is essentially when the person who you are inside and the person who you want to be out there in the world, the person you are being out there in the world, are one and the same. So when you're inner values and your external actions 
start to match up more and more, that is when you are living more aligned. That's one leg of the stool. The second leg is contentment. Contentment is what are those things that you do in life? What are those experiences that make you feel calm, at peace? You know, when are you at peace with your life and your decisions? That's what I'm talking about when I say contentment. And the third leg is control. Now, I thought long and hard about the word control because, again, like happiness, I think the word control can be misinterpreted. And I really wrestled with this light, but I did go for control in the end because I found that most of my patients, most of the people I spoke to about it, kind of got what I meant straight away by it. So when I say control, I am not talking about controlling the world and controlling external events. Because the last two years, I think, have taught us all that, that the world is uncontrollable. Even if we want the world to go a certain way, the world will do what the world does, right? So when I say control, I mean a sense of control. What are the things that you can do regularly, on a daily basis, perhaps, that give you a sense of control over your life? Because we know, I know from clinical experience, but also from the research, that people who have a strong sense of control over their lives, they have higher motivation, they have higher levels of academic success, they have higher social maturity, they are healthier, they're happier. And conversely, people who lack a sense of control over their lives have very high levels of psychological stress. And so these are the three legs of the core happiness stool. And what I really wanted with this model is for people to understand that actually happiness is something you can work on. So we understand that if you go to the gym every day and do bicep curls, we know that we're going to get stronger biceps. And I wanted to create a simple model that also gives people the idea that, oh, if I want to become happier, I need to work on these legs of the stool, right? So everything in the book is completely free, right? These are just ideas, simple exercises that people can do that work on alignment, that work on contentment, that work on control. And as you strengthen each one of those legs on the stool, the side effect is going to be that you feel happier more often. So you're not actually directly working on happiness. You're working on alignment. You're working on contentment. You're working on control. These are much more tangible things, I think, for people to really focus on. And the side effect is that you're going to be happier more often. So that's kind of the rough model. And throughout the book, there's all kinds of ideas and exercises that work on different legs of the stool. And the feedback, I've got to say, like so far, has been absolutely incredible in the UK. I've never had a book launch like this. It seems to really be landing with people, really helping people reflect on their lives. And I'm incredibly passionate about it. And I really think this model, I haven't found a situation yet where this model doesn't hold true, right? I spent a long time trying to create a model that I felt would hold true in every situation that people could put in their back pocket, take it out with them in their life and go, oh, I see, that's why this is helping me. This is why I feel good after that. Oh, this is why when I do that, I don't feel so good. Like, I don't know, I had a patient once who did something a bit underhand at work to get a promotion, took credit for something that really wasn't their thing. And this is a prime example of alignment and this idea that we can't hide from ourselves. Yes, they got the promotion, but in the late hours when you're lying in bed, you can't escape from what you did. You know what you did. That person was not acting in accordance with their values. So they understand now, oh, I was weakening my alignment leg. That's why I felt less happy afterwards, despite on the outside getting a promotion and a pay rise. 
So I think it's very helpful. I think it works for people across all sections of society, no matter what job they're in, no matter really their socioeconomic status. Like I understand that socioeconomic status matters. I understand that money does play a role here. But you know, just to finish that thought about money, I don't think money brings happiness in and of itself. I think what money does do is remove common sources of unhappiness. And I've worked for many years in, well, there was one practice in particular in the centre of Oldham in the north of England, very, very deprived area. Many of my patients there were immigrant families on benefits, a lot of single parents. And I see how that was affecting their health, right? But I still maintain that all the things I write about in my previous books and in this book, I was using with those patients because even though I couldn't change necessarily a lot of the struggle in their life, I was able to help them with simple tools that empower them to better show up to face those problems, to make better decisions in the face of that adversity. So I'm very, very passionate that good health information, good health advice should be accessible to all. And I think wellness sometimes gets a bad reputation for being like a middle-class pursuit. And I've always fought hard against that because I understand where that comes from. But all the advice I try to give in my podcasts and my books, I try my best to make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. And it's a very intentional effort to do that because I I do feel very passionate about trying to share information that everyone's going to find useful. But of course, I'm not saying that money and social status doesn't play a role. I do understand that that can make it harder for some people to make those choices. So what's a personal experience that you had that shifted the idea of success and happiness, the, the myth that one leads to the other shifted for you and you kind of went in on this other direction of it's got to be something different than just money or titles or labels. Yeah. And was there this one kind of seminal moment where I suddenly woke up the next day and thought, oh, I get it now. No, it was subtle shifts day after day, bit by bit. You know, as I answer that, and I'm drawn to the conversations we've had on my show in the in the past light, and obviously you're a meditation teacher. And for me, one of the benefits of meditation, and I appreciate I'm talking to a meditation teacher here. So this is me sharing my experience rather than trying to say what meditation does or doesn't do. But in my experience, one of the benefits of meditation or frankly, any practice of intentional solitude is that you allow your innermost thoughts and feelings to come up to the surface where you can then deal with them and process them and sit with them. And I think many people, and I probably would include myself in this category in the past, were so busy doing stuff like, you know, yeah, productive stuff, stuff that helps people, but doing, doing or consuming things all the time that even good stuff, consuming good podcasts, consuming good audiobooks, whatever it might be, if there's constant incoming coming in from the outside to your body, you're never really being in touch with how you're truly feeling, with how you're body's experiencing what's actually going on. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, that one of my most important practices that I do every day is my morning routine. And essentially, it is a practice of solitude where it allows me to really understand how I'm feeling. And I write about it in the book about, it's almost like taking a daily holiday, right? That 
I remember really well, like that one of my buddies, he used to work in a factory and he's told me that actually his boss would literally have a counter on his desk and it would count down and, he would, and people would come in in the morning. He would say, oh, only 66 days till I'm on a beach in Florida. Only 65 days, guys, till I'm on a beach in Florida. And that story has never left me because I thought that's really interesting. People are living their lives, counting down the days for that mythical one week where life's going to be wonderful on a beach, right? And it made me really question, what is a holiday? Well, it can be many things, right? For many people here in the UK, they go on holiday for sun, for better weather. It can be not working, all kinds of things, seeing your family. But I think one of the big things people get on a holiday is perspective. Right? If you're flying somewhere, even as the plane's taking off, you suddenly start to get this 30,000 foot view on your life. Those small things that you were bothered about suddenly get put into this larger context. And I think that's what we need every day. We need a period of time where we take a holiday from our lives, when we step outside our lives to gain perspective. Now, you might do that with meditation, for example. Many of your clients may do that with meditation. I often do that with meditation. It could be a walk or a run with no earbuds in, where you're just literally switching off. It could be a cup of coffee where you're not looking at the news. It could be anything, whatever that is for you. But I see it as what I would call an early warning system. So when I was a junior doctor, like I remember so well, it was back when I was in Edinburgh, I remember being taught, maybe my second year since qualifying, right guys, listen, if we do certain things and we check certain parameters in the patient every hour, we can predict who is going to need a high dependency bed or an intensive care bed a few hours later. And so by predicting that, we can then take aversive action to stop that happening. I thought, isn't that so cool? We can stop people by understanding when they're going in a certain direction, we can get involved and change the trajectory. I see a daily practice of solitude as the same thing. It's an early warning system for ourselves. It's a way of us starting to tap into when we're going off track, when we're starting to make the wrong choices, overwork, experience tension in our body, the sort of things that we don't realize when we're constantly consuming. And you know, I've realized, for example, when I've got too much on light, I start to feel this real tightness in my upper right back. Now, I've probably had that for years. I never knew. But now, with this intentional awareness or a body scan or whatever, it's like, oh, oh, you're starting to get that tightness again. It's my early warning system. So it helps me sort of go, oh, okay, what's going on? Yeah, you're working a bit too hard at the moment. Do you need to prioritize an early night? Do you need to say no to a few commitments? So this is quite a long-winded answer to your question, but essentially, I think it is this, you know, I mentioned after my dad died that I would go for walks a lot in all the spare time I had. I wouldn't listen to anything. I would just walk and I would think. And with all that space, things started to come up for me, things that had, I'd probably buried for years, right? And so a few personal moments that came up, you know, look, I'm in the public eye certainly here in the UK in quite a big way. In 2015, I had my own primetime BBC One series called Doctor in the House, which ran for a few seasons. And these were one-hour shows where I would go into families' lives. I'd help these families over the course of six weeks. And it was shown on primetime television, which has gone out to 70 countries around the world, right? So being in the public eye these days, in the world of social media, it makes you learn some lessons pretty quickly because 
If you don't learn and sort out your inner world and your innermost emotions, it can destroy you pretty quickly. And I used to get very up and down, like positive comments would make me feel good. Negative comments would make me feel literally worthless. I remember when that first series came out and I'd helped this family, this lady who had been in chronic pain for over 10 years and had been under doctors and specialists. And I managed to help her get pain free within six weeks. I thought this is just incredible to be able to show this to 5 million people a week. And, you know, 99% of the tweets were positive, but 1% were very attacking. What are you doing? Well, you know, this is not real medicine, whatever. Man, I didn't sleep for about a week. It really, really bothered me because I can now look back and go, I wasn't really secure in who I was. I've learned that when you're truly secure in who you are, the negative comments don't bring you right down. And the positive comments don't artificially elevate your ego either. You just stay a lot more constant, a lot more balanced, right? So I think being in the public eye has helped me learn a lot of these lessons fast because I'm someone who society would consider very successful lights, right? I'm a medical doctor. I've just published my fifth Sunday Times bestseller, right? I have a podcast that millions listen to every month, right? I've ticked off those boxes of societal success, but the truth is, until very recently, I don't think I was really content. I thought the answers to feel good were out there with external validation and doing things. And this is an example that I'm just not sure how relatable it is to people, but you asked me for a personal experience. I love my work. I love that what I do gets to help people. But it would be naive to think it hasn't done something for me as well, right? So when my very first book, The Four Pillar Plan in the UK or How to Make Disease Disappear in the US, same book, when it came out five years ago and it got to number one in all books on Amazon in the UK, my buddies from university in our WhatsApp group and me were going nuts. We were so excited. We're like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's the number one book in the country, right? And that felt great. And yes, it was great that I was sharing this message. It was going to help people. But there was a part of me that was also, there was that external validation. Oh man, yeah, brilliant. This is cool. This is really good. I'm glad it's doing so well, right? Next year after, a second book, The Stress Solution comes out. Again, gets to number one in all books on Amazon. And yeah, it felt good. It didn't feel quite as good, right? But it still felt good and my mates were texting me. As I say this, I even don't know if this is relatable or not, but you you can tell me afterwards, like, third book comes out, Feel Better in Five. Same thing happens, right? But it took a few days to get there and I'm starting to think, oh man, is it going to do it again? I know this is a good book. Oh man, yeah, great. Got there in the end, yeah. So you're not feeling much. You're like, okay, it's more like a bit of a relief rather than actual joy and contentment. Fourth book last year, again, it gets there. I am just relieved now that it's actually met this new bar that I've set for myself, where frankly, 10 years ago, if you told me I'd ever write a book that got in the top 1,000 on Amazon, I think I'd bite your hand off. And it really interestingly, that whole process has helped me, you know, it's a small thing, but it's, it's more inputs into my system where I go, man, this stuff is just, it's not real. It's just a story. These ratings come and they go. They don't mean what you think they're going to mean when you get there. You still need to feed the kids afterwards. Still need to put the washing on, right? I don't know if it's the best example, but for me, it's been really, really real to the point where, like, we're recording this conversation a month after the UK book has come out, right? Now, a few weeks before the book came out, 
I remember chatting to one of my friends and they said, oh, you must be really excited. You must be hoping the book does really well. I've got to tell you, like, and this is what I said to him. I said, you know what, mate? Honestly, I really feel I'm in a place where I don't need this book to be a success now to make me feel good about myself, right? I know this is a great book. I said that with zero arrogance. I know this is a great book. It's going to help people. This is the best that I can do at this moment in my life. Whether anyone buys this book or not doesn't say anything about who I am, doesn't say anything about the quality of this book. I really felt I'd got to the place where I had let go of the need for the outcome of this book to be something, right? And am I telling myself a story here? I don't think so. I genuinely think I've got to the point where I'd let go and I thought, no, let's put it out there. It will be what it will be. If people like it and they share it, great. If they don't, okay, cool. It's still a great book. And as it would happen, I think there's a universal lesson here. (laughs) I've never had a book that's been more successful, right? It goes straight to the top of the number one Sunday Times paperback charts. It stays there for the first three weeks. But here's the other truth, like when my publisher phoned me, right? The book had been out. I got a text message from my editor saying, hey, could you call when you get a moment? I thought this is unusual. I had no idea what it was. So I, yeah, I phoned her. She said, wrong and look, I've just got great news for you. Just found out you're going to be the number one paperback in the country on the Sunday Times list this weekend. Congratulations. And you could hear she was really, really excited. Honestly, lights, I didn't feel much. I honestly didn't feel much. Like, it was just nice to hear. But my daughter had to go to netball practice 20 minutes later and I had to go and get her clothes ready. And it was a real life experience that taught me, man, you have changed. You really have changed. This is not you trying to be something or trying to live a certain way. In that moment where I got the kind of news that I think most authors would give you their arm for or think they would give you their arm for, I didn't feel much. It wasn't that I felt low. There was a quiet contentment. It was genuinely a kind of oh, I'm so happy that it was different from before, right? It had a different flavor. We didn't even celebrate. And maybe you could say I've gone the other way now, but these things, honestly, they just don't mean that much to me anymore. Now you could say, well, that's okay for you, buddy. You've had this degree of success now, right? So you can chill out about it now because you've had that validation. Yeah, sure. I think there's an element of truth to that. Yeah, I can do. But what I hope to do by sharing stories like this or sharing the book is, you know, I hope to share with people that actually your dreams won't always make you happy. There's a section in the book where I say your dreams won't make you happy. Time and time again, if we chase the wrong dreams, we find that they won't make us happy. And the amount of times I've spoken to people on my podcast, I'm sure you have as well, like where people, they get their dreams, but there's still that hole in their heart underneath. And for me, I'm very, very proud of my work I'm delighted that it helps so many people. But honestly, I really am at that point now. Look, I'm 44. I've been through a lot in my life, like many people, but I really feel I've never been this happy, this content, this calm inside. And it feels really, really good. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, look, you wrote a book called Happy Mind, Happy Life. So the medium is the message. And as I say in the streets, you're getting high on your own supply. (laughs) You can't spend the amount of time that you have to write a book thinking about this stuff. And it's not like you just started thinking about it either, right? You've been thinking about it since you were taking care of your dad every day for years going in. And you had that image juxtaposed with his idea of success and 
that became crystal clear, I imagine, over that process that this is not where it's at. and It's got to be somewhere else. And you're taking these long walks and you're focused on just helping people. This is your fifth book. And I, I noticed that when you were writing those other four books, they all were published in December, one year after the next, December 2017, December 2018, 19. You're a busy guy, right? You have a podcast, you have a practice, your TV show. You have to be very scheduled to get that kind of book yeah. production <laughs> done, which means you have to restrict yourself. And, and I would say, just from my experience, because look, I've been meditating for 20 years and I still can yeah. feel some kind of way about a negative comment that I may see, but I just have to tell myself, I'm just not going to engage at all. It's almost like my own restriction for myself is people can write or think whatever they want to think. Yes, I believe in my message. Yes, I believe that what I'm saying can help somebody out there. And you have to have these like really strict rules. Like, I'm going to take this hour in the morning to do this routine. I'm going to spend quality time with the kids. I'm going to spend a date night with my wife. Talk a little bit about that. What kind of restrictions do you have in your own personal life that allow you to have this mindset and, and the insights that you have and, and allow you to feel that sense of contentness and alignment and control the things that you can control in your life? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, certainly my family is a huge part of this. I know it doesn't have to be for everyone, right? But for me, I'm 14 years married, got two kids who I adore. And yeah, I put out a lot of content regularly. And so I am very structured in some aspects. And I help look after my mom, who's pretty immobile these days with my brother, right? So it does seem quite a lot on the outside. But what are the restrictions? Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't watch TV, right? I'm the guy who doesn't know any celebrity, any film, the latest gossip. I mean, I don't watch the news. I don't watch TV, right? So I'm not saying that that's been a great sacrifice for me. It's just as part of the life that nourishes me that just doesn't fit in, right? So to paint a bit of a picture, typically I will go to bed by 9 p.m. and be up at 5, roughly. That's kind of roughly when I'm at my best. And I didn't always wake up that early. But ever since my kids were born, they've always been early risers. And I know that I am a better human being when I've had time to myself in the morning before my kids are up or before my wife is up, right? I've experimented with both of those things. And when I've had that me time in the morning, I'm a better doctor, I'm a better father, I'm a better husband. So I prioritize it. So that means I go to bed early so that I can get up at five and not be exhausted. So I have a good eight hours of sleep. And then I engage in a morning routine. And that morning routine, for me, at the moment, it's always had this, what I call a 3M framework, mindfulness, movement, and mindsets, right? A practice of mindfulness, practice of movement, practice of mindset. So it's currently for me looks like this. I get up, I come down to my living room, and I've just learned a new breath hold meditation practice from this chap called Irwin Lacour, who created the MoveNat, natural movements sort of schools around the world. And it's been wonderful. It's a meditation done through breath holding. Okay. It's not very commonly out there. It's very, very different from the Wim Hof method. There's no hyperventilation at all. It's really taught me a lot about how much energy we consume when we are thinking. And I've learned that the quieter my mind is, and the quieter my body is, the longer my breath hold goes. It's been it really has been profound. So I spend about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes doing this kind of 
breath hold meditation practice in the morning. Then what I do is I make a coffee in my kitchen. I'm very precise with how I make it. I weigh up 15 grams of coffee, 250 mils of water, but then I put a timer on for five minutes lights. In those five minutes, right, I don't look at email. I don't look at Instagram. I do a five-minute bodyweight workout in my pajamas, right? Sometimes it's press-ups and tricep dips. Sometimes it's kettlebell swings, whatever, right? But I've stacked it on so I I never miss it because I never miss my coffee, so I never miss my workouts. So I do a five-minute workout every day. And then after that, I have the reward of a nice hot cup of fresh coffee. I sit there and drink it. And I'll read like an uplifting book. I've got a few books always kicking around in my kitchen and I'll just sit there and I'll pick one. And it's always something that uplifts me or a spiritual book or something that makes me think deeply. And if my kids are down before that, like sometimes my daughter will be down by this time. She's got the sixth sense that daddy's up doing something downstairs. You know, the old wrong and light would honestly would, I used to get frustrated. It's like, oh man, I just need this time to myself. And I've completely changed. I embrace it now. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Okay. Hey, darling, how are you doing? Look, sometimes now for the mindset piece, we'll do affirmations together. So she'll come and sit next to me and I say, hey, you know, daddy's just doing his routine. Do you want to join me for the last bit? She goes, yeah, yeah. So we sit there, we hold hands and we, for a minute or two, we'll say, I'm happy, I'm calm, I'm stress-free. I'm happy, I'm calm, I'm stress-free. We'll just repeat affirmations. Or she'll say, oh, daddy, I'm going to sit next to you and read as well while you're doing your reading. And For me, on the days where I have that practice, and honestly, it doesn't really take me more than half an hour, this. Some days you'll compress it to 20 minutes, some days you'll have the luxury of 40 minutes, but I have created a lifestyle where I do that almost every single morning, and that's important to me, right? So a lot of people find this, oh, it's a sacrifice. Well, look, I have helped my patients bring morning routines into their life, even five-minute morning routines. Or frankly, if the morning doesn't work for you, fine, find another time. But I think that daily practice of solitude is something I do. So in answer to your question, I prioritize my sleep. Okay. I have a morning routine every morning and I will usually make sure I go for at least a 30-minute walk every day. These are the kind of, I was going to say non-negotiables, but I even have a problem these days with the term non-negotiable because Even that implies to me like a rule that I have to stick to. And I've kind of moved on from that light. I think for many years, I would have called these things non-negotiables. But I have found that as I have less rules around what I do, I'm actually much more sustainable with what I do. And and, and what I mean by that is self-compassion has been something I've worked on a lot over the last few years. I think for much of my life, I didn't really like the person who I was. Right? I didn't actively know that, but I would talk down to myself. I'd call myself a loser a lot. I'd, yeah, I think I really struggle with that component of things. And as I've learned to love myself, right, as I really like the person who I see in the mirror these days, I don't need the rules anymore. I do that morning routine, not because I said I would and I have to stick to it. No, because a person who loves themselves wants to do stuff that nourishes them. And what it means, Light, is if I ever miss a day, I don't beat myself up, right? I'm like, oh, cool. Oh, yeah, you notice you were getting a bit more triggered in the afternoon. You weren't quite as calm as usual. Ah, yeah, you know what? You're much better when you actually have that time in the morning. Okay, tomorrow, make sure you do that again. Because the only, this is what I see at New Year a lot lights with people. They make these strict resolutions, right? I'm going to meditate this year, right? This is the year, right? And they start meditating. And let's say they use an app, 
and there's a streak going like a lot of these apps do. And then this would have been me. I'm 14 days in, I'm doing well. And then I'd miss a day. Oh my God. If it was the end of the world, man, you couldn't do it, could you? Right? You start it, you miss the day, you've got to start the streak all over again. Negative self-talk. And as I've learned to love myself, I don't need the rules anymore. I don't make New Year's resolutions anymore because I don't need to. A person who truly loves themselves does this stuff, in my view, because they want to. So, I mean, there's a lot more I could say about the sort of things I do each day, but these are the real things that I prioritize. I also massively prioritize undistracted time with my wife and my kids, hugely. So I will very much make sure that for dinner time, there's never any devices around, there's never any laptop around. We sit around a table and as much as possible, we try and be present. And if I can't be present for whatever reason, I have that awareness now to go, oh, that's interesting. You were still thinking about work, weren't you? Okay, cool. How can tomorrow I make a slightly different decision that will help me be more present? So I kind of really focus on these key things and then my work gets done around that. And I know it seems like a a huge amount of content to be putting out a book a year, a long form podcast each week. I do this daily five minute Amazon podcast every day and other stuff that I do like a national radio show. But I'm very structured. I'm very structured and it doesn't feel, you know, I'll be honest at the moment because the book's launching, my balance isn't as good as it usually is. But that's the truth and that's okay. I'm aware of that and I go, okay, this serves the goal of birthing this book out there into the world and putting it out there because you can spend a year and a half thinking about these ideas, trying to articulate them in a very clear way that people can utilize. And what I say to every author, you know, writing the book is only half the job, right? You've also got to maintain the energy and the desire to go and get the message out and the book out there. And I think a lot of authors don't do that second part, which I think in some ways is just as important. So I take that seriously, but I'm already planning in a few weeks, how do I then recalibrate and get that balance back? Did that answer your question, Lights, in terms of the sort of things I do? Yeah, and it, it actually brings up another thing that I've always wondered about you. You've got a pretty decent-sized family, and you, this whole nine-to-five sleep routine sounds awesome. But what if you're listening to this, and your wife likes to stay up till midnight and have the TV on in the bedroom? And how do you enroll the people that you spend the most time with into that sort of healthier yeah. routine and schedule and restrictions? Yeah, like this, it's a great question. So, look in my own life. In fact, look, the truth is my wife would prefer me to go to bed later than I do. That is true. We have a discussion a lot about this because she prefers to get up later and go to bed later. So this is an ongoing discussion that we're, we're having. At you the said, moment. honey, at least I'm not sleeping in a tent at night. Okay, so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> no, we're talking about rich role. Yeah, rich exactly. Role. Yeah, it's, it's all good, right? I mean, this is a wider point, right? Isn't it? It's about, and this comes up at pretty much... Every live event I've done over the past five or six years, this tends to be one of the questions. Hey, Dr. Chashi, look, I've experienced this myself. I've seen the benefits. How do I help the people closest to me? They don't want to hear it. They're not interested. And I think this is the underlying theme of your question, really, is certainly what I'm hearing. And first of all, I think it's very hard, right? Often the people closest to us, they don't want to hear it from us, right? They want to hear it. They'll hear it from someone else, even a few years ago, right? I'd been out in the media for years. I'm sharing all these messages. 
I can't remember what it was, but my wife said to me, hey, you know, I've been hearing about this guy talking about this kind of time-restricted eating. You know, I think I'm going to try it. It sounds awesome. I'm like, hey, babe, you know, I've been talking about this in public for about three years, right? It's in my first book that has been out. And the thing is, she doesn't want to hear it from me, right? She wants to hear it from somebody else and not her husband. So I think that's the first thing for people to be aware of, that it's not necessarily you or the way you're delivering that message. It's sometimes there's all that history between us and our loved ones. And often they don't want the advice, right? So the first thing is, yes, it can be hard. Now, one thing I think is really helpful is be the change yourself, right? You do the things where you're putting these things into practice as much as you can, and you're starting to feel better. You're starting to be less reactive. Your skin's glowing more. You've got more energy. Whatever it might be, people around you will see that. And when they are ready to change... And no one's ready to change until they are, right? Things work until they don't work. And so when your partner or your brother or your sister or your best friend is really struggling, they go, hey, listen, I've noticed. What is it that thing you're doing again? Because I've noticed you're looking great. You're, you've always got energy. So I think that's an, an approach to take. Be the change. Don't lecture the people around you, especially if they've not asked you for that advice. And then that's a, that's a third point for me. Ask for permission. I think asking for permission to give advice is something that's very underrated. So this isn't quite the same thing, but one thing I've learned in 14 years of marriage light is that my wife doesn't always want me to fix something when she tells me about it. it. Took me a little bit of time to figure this out. Honestly, she sometimes just wants me to listen, right? And I think many women will say this, that they don't want their husbands or their partners or whatever. It doesn't. I mean, it's not just women. I know that, but I've seen this a lot in women. And I've learned, so what I do now with my wife is if she's sharing something with me, I say, hey, babe, listen, can I just check? Do you want me to listen here or do you want me to provide a solution? And she goes, I just want you to listen. I said, okay, great. It sounds so simple, but it has changed things dramatically because there's a real openness in communication. And sometimes now she'll say, yeah, actually, you know what? Have you got any ideas on how I can sort this out? So just ask for permission. So it could be that your loved one or your friend or your sister or whoever it is, often we try and make the advice or give the advice when people are feeling triggered. Like when they're really struggling, we say, hey, look, you know, I know what's going to help you. I told you this last week, you know, this will really help. That is not the time, in my view, to have these conversations. If your partner, let's say, is struggling with something, in that moment, don't bring it up. Maybe a few days later when you guys are out for a walk together, you're doing something completely different. Say, hey, babe, listen, you know, I've noticed a few times that you're really tired in the morning and you're struggling to fall asleep. I've been hearing about these really cool ideas that I think might help you. Do you want to hear about them? In that setting, you might be surprised. Your partner or your brother or your sister might go, hey, yeah, go on, go on, I'm, I'm interested actually. You know, what have you learned? What have you heard? So I think when we bring things up, makes a massive difference as to how they land. And I have this phrase light that I write about in this book. It's something I talk about when I teach doctors, the principles that I write about. The phrase is this, connect first, educate second. And this started for me in the context of a doctor-patient relationship. I found that I've learned this so many times that no one really cares how much you know you know, as the phrase goes, until they know how much you care. And what I've always done with my patients, so this goes back to your initial question about this curiosity and this inquisitiveness. Yeah, as I think about it, I have always been that person, actually. 
with my patients, I've always wanted to get to know them, not just their symptom, them, you know, who are you? Why are you here today? What's going on? What do you do in your spare time? How do you live? That's always fascinated me. And I think that's the best thing about being a doctor. You get to really learn about people. And I've learned that if I take the time to connect with them, then I give my education, it lands really, really nicely. But if I try and rush it and get to the education piece without the connection, it just doesn't work. And then if that holds true for a doctor-patient relationship, well, then you step back and go, well, it doesn't that hold true for every relationship, right? With your children, with your partner, with your friends, connect first, educate second. So again, back in this context of a loved one, not understanding how beneficial some of these changes might be. Well, do they know first how much you care about them? When they're in need, are you really there for them and present and listening and not trying to put your own spin on things? Because when we really take that time to connect and that person knows that we truly care for them, honestly, I think that's when they're really, really open to listening. So a few kind of different ideas there, but it's a common question this line. And I hope people find those ideas useful because I found them to be very, very effective. Well, speaking of connection, another part of your book that I really enjoyed was this idea of talking to strangers, because that's something I like to do all the time. And what are some of the considerations? Well, first of all, why is it important to talk to strangers? And then what are some of the considerations when you go up and talk to strangers? Yeah. So there's a whole chapter on this. And Let's look at it through the lens of this core happiness stool, right? Again, this three-legged stool, alignment, contentment, and control. What does talking to strangers do? Well, it really helps you with the control leg of the stool. And that may not be immediately obvious, right? So why is that? So there's a part of your brain, there's a network of systems that scientists call the sociometer, right? I love it. And it's basically... It's always scanning your external world for threats to check that the world around you is safe. So here's the thing. Every time you go and say hi to a stranger, this is not about the deep, intimate conversations you might have with your friends or your partner. This is about saying hello to the Amazon delivery driver and looking them in the eye, nodding and saying, how are you to the barista at your local cafe, at the post office, at the supermarket, the checkout assistant, whatever it might be. Those little brief exchanges, the nods, the glances, they send a message to your sociometer that your external world is safe. You're not under threat, which gives you a sense of control over the world, over your life, right? So it's that control leg of the stool. So talking to strangers is really, really good for us. And people like you and me, probably do it quite naturally. I'm an extrovert, so I do it quite naturally. But the research shows that it doesn't matter whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, talking to strangers will make you feel happier, more content and more in control. And so I think this has really played out in 2020 and 2021 when, depending on where you lived in the world, there were all kinds of restrictions that you faced and places were shut. And a lot of introverts would say at the start, I've been preparing this for my entire life. There's going to be no problem for me. But a lot of introverts would come and see me and will say to me, oh man, you know, I realize actually, although I'm introverted, I'd often go and take my laptop and sit in a cafe and work. And 
I really miss the buzz of people and human noise around me, right? We're social animals, right? We need that connection. We need deep, intimate connection, but we also need this kind of low-grade connection with strangers. And, you know, there's all kinds of studies which play this out. Professor Nick Epley in Chicago did this beautiful study where he looked at commuters from suburbs in Chicago into Chicago city center coming in for work. And he looked at these groups of people and he asked them, basically, well, the study was people were put into different groups. One group had to go on the commuter train in and do what they would usually do. One group were told you have to strike up a conversation with a stranger. And the group who had to strike up a conversation with a stranger was asked beforehand what the stranger would think. Now, the group thought, well, they're probably not going to want to talk to me on their commute. So the prediction was that people wouldn't like it. But actually, what actually ended up happening is that the group who had to strike up a conversation with the strangers was happier and more content straight after their journey. And those feelings lasted throughout the day, which is incredible. But also, the people who they struck at conversations with were also happier and were glad that someone struck up a conversation with them. Now, you may think this is unique to Chicago, but this has been played out in many different places, including the London Undergrounds. Right? The London Underground, people say, no, no, it wouldn't work there. Actually, it worked in London as well, which is, in fact, was it the Underground or was it commuter trains into London? It was definitely played out again in London. The point is, there is so much research showing that when we interact with strangers who we don't know, we feel happier, we feel more content, and we feel in control. So how can people do this? Look, whatever your starting point is, I would say, just like in the gym, if you've never been before, you're going to just pick a weight, just a little bit more than what you're used to, or a very lightweight. Start small, right? If you live somewhere where Amazon delivers, and there's a delivery driver popping in, and you normally don't say anything, look them in the eye next time, and just give them a smile right? Just a gentle smile. That's it. If you give a gentle smile, they give you just a a reciprocal smile back. You are sending a message to your sociometer that your external world is safe. That will help you with your feelings of happiness and contentment. It really will. You can go a bit further next time. As you practice, you do that for a week or two, you can build it up. Next time they come and go, hey, oh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You were here last week, weren't you? Yeah. How's it going? How's your day going? Oh yeah, busy for you. No worries. Anyway, have a good one right? Whatever. Just start small and slowly start to build up. And I've done this with many of my patients. In fact, I'll tell you, one of my patients, right? This chap called Femi, and he was in his 30s, had a really bad skin condition, right? And I really strongly felt that stress was certainly exacerbating things, if not driving a lot of what was going on. But this guy was pretty isolated. He wouldn't go out much. And I said, what do you enjoy doing? He says, I love First thing in the morning, I love drinking my coffee, sitting in my kitchen, reading the newspaper online. Sorry, reading the news online. And I said to him, okay, look, what I want you to do is, fine, have your drink. You like reading the news. I want you to go to the local news agent, the local corner shop, and buy a real newspaper every morning and come back and read it in your kitchen. So he starts to do this, right? He doesn't usually do this. He goes into the shop each morning buys the newspaper, comes back, reads it at home. And after a few days, he went in and the guy who normally serves him wasn't there. And so he asked, hey, where's, where's that chap gone? And he goes, oh, you know, the guy's sick. Actually, he's at home for a few days. And little by little, he started to get to know the community in his neighborhood, right? 
One of the other guys who was there every morning, he'd often see with this sports bag and he would be going to the gym. And after, I think, a week or two, the guy invited Femi to the gym with him. And I'm not kidding you, within months, within two or three months, this guy's like a different person, right? His skin is considerably better. He's lost weight. He's feeling full of energy. All that happened, right, was that he would go to the local shop to buy a newspaper, which forced him to interact with people he doesn't know. And I've done this many times with many of my patients because many people are feeling very isolated. They are feeling very alone. And the more we isolate ourselves, the harder it gets to have the simplest of interactions. Now, now, like some people will hear that and go, well, I do that naturally. Great. If you do that naturally, fantastic. But there will be many people in your life who find that to be the most frightening thing in the world. And if you can just gently expose yourself to that, you know, if you like drinking coffee, for example, well, there's all kinds of considerations of cost and convenience and things, but some people are better going to a coffee shop and buying a coffee, even though it might cost them a bit more money because of the social interaction they're going to get when they get there. It sounds very, very simple, and it is for many people, but it can make a huge, huge difference. So this guy, Femi, he came to you for some medical ailment and you told him you told him to go start going to buy the paper. Yeah, look, that was totally. This is what I do, right? I try and take a, you know, that he had tried creams in the past. They weren't working particularly well. He was getting very frustrated with them. He didn't apply them regularly. So I was trying to take a different approach. I was trying to see well, what's going on, what's driving this. Now, I'm not saying the stress was the only cause of this. But stress makes most things worse. It makes a lot of skin conditions considerably worse. And so I'm always trying to find a way in with my patients. What's missing here? What simple thing can I do that's going to have what I call a ripple effect? And this story always sticks in my mind because it was so powerful. Walking to get a newspaper, interact with people, it led to this ripple effect. And his skin gets considerably better as well. And he's feeling better in himself. So I've always tried to do things like this. I mean, I'll give you another example of something that relates to what we were talking about at the start of this conversation about success v. happiness. I saw this chap, Stuart, maybe seven years ago now, right? I think he was 37 at the time. Now, from the outside light, Stuart looked as though he was crushing life. Okay, he ran his own business. He drove a sports car. He would work whenever he wanted on his terms, right? From uh, coffee shops, he'd work at weekends, right? The guy's living the modern dream, right? But here's the thing. He came in to see me and he said, Dr. Shasti, look, I'm a bit worried that I've got depression. I said, okay, well, what's going on? He said, well, some days I wake up feeling really low. Some days I just lie in bed. I'm lacking motivation to do anything. And I feel indifferent about my life, my job sometimes. Is this depression? And, you know, I ran some tests. I spent some time with him. And I once asked him, Lights, I said, hey, you know, what do you do? Do you ever see any of your friends at all? And he said, hey, Doc, look, I'm busy. You know, I'm running my own business. I don't really have time. I see what they're up to. You know, I see pictures of what they're up to on Facebook and Instagram. But I don't really get to see them, actually. And that's the crazy thing, isn't it, about 21st century living, Lights, that we can see what our friends are eating, right? We can see where they've been on holiday, but we don't actually have to see them. and. 
I gave him, again, one of my alternate prescriptions. I said, okay, Stuarts, until you come back and see me in six weeks, what I want you to do is this. I want you to, once a week, see one of your friends in person. And when you're with them, I want you to put the phone away. So you're really present for that interaction. Now, the guy was desperate, right? I appreciate it wasn't the prescription he was expecting from me, but he was desperate and he went away. And now, a bit of context here. He lived in the town where he grew up. So a lot of his friends actually did live nearby, which I know is not the case for everyone. Anyway, he goes away. Six weeks later, he comes back to see me, Lights. And he almost bounced into the room, right? I said, hey, how you doing? He said, I'm fantastic, doctor. I feel like I've got my mojo back. I'm motivated. I've got my lust for life back. Things feel really good. I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, look, first of all, on a Sunday morning, I'd meet one of my friends in the local coffee shop and we'd just chat for an hour or so over a drink. And then after a few weeks, we decided to get a few of the guys together for a game of five-a-side football every Wednesday after work. That is all that changed, right? That is the only thing he changed and he felt like a different person. Now, I saw him for a few months after that. The guy continued to improve. He never went backwards. And that one small change led to a ripple effect whereby because... He felt so unfit playing football because he hadn't played in years. He started to go to bed a little bit earlier, eat a little bit better. All these kind of things came on the back of it. But this guy, Light, he did not have an antidepressant deficiency in his life, right? He had a friendship deficiency. And once he corrected that friendship deficiency, everything else came back online, including his moods. Many people are doing this, Lights. We are chasing stuff. We're neglecting the things that truly make us happy. And it's not about saying, oh, you can't be successful. Just sit every day with your friends and your family. No, you can get a balance. You can get a much more intentional balance. But this guy wasn't doing that. And here's the other thing, Light, which is really striking about this case, is that his friends thought he was doing absolutely fine. They had no idea. They thought he was crushing things, right? And that there's a chapter in the book, in the new book called Have Massless Conversations. And this is almost the opposite of talking to strangers. This is actually about the different kinds of relationships where those people in your life, if you're lucky, many of us have these people, but we often neglect them. We often are too busy to actually spend time with them. But who are those people in your life where you can literally take off these metaphorical masks and actually be yourself and open up without fear of judgment, without needing to impress in a certain way? You know, for me, it's my old uni buddies who I can do that with, who I can just be myself with, my old schoolmates, my wife, And when you nourish those relationships and you truly take the time to take those masks off, not only do you reveal yourself to other people, you actually reveal yourself to yourself as well. You get to know yourself better through these interactions. And that's what happened with Stuart. And, you know, here's the other thing, Lights, right? There's this exercise in the book called Write Your Own Happy Ending. It's a two-part exercise. The second part is imagine you're on your deathbed right? Look back on your life and ask yourself, what are three things you will want to have done? So think about them. And then you go back to your weekly life and go, okay, what are three happiness habits I'd have to do each week? And if I did them each week, I'd get that happy ending that I just defined that I want. And it's a very powerful exercise. It's very, very simple. But what it does, it helps people understand, like at the end of my life, for example, if I say, I want to have spent quality time with my friends and family, and then I look at my week-to-week life and go, man, I'm, I'm too busy. Like, I don't have any time to do it. 
it's just a very simple way to start not beating yourself up, right? But being aware and going, ah, okay, maybe I need to make a few small changes here because if I keep going like this, I ain't going to get that happy ending that I've just defined that I want. And like the truth is, although we're all very, very different, we kind of know what everyone's going to say at the end of their life. Why? Because palliative care nurses tell us people say the same things over and over again. I wish I'd work less. I wish I spent more time with my friends and family. I wish I'd allowed myself to be happy. And the one that gets me every time I think about it is this. I wish I'd lived my life and not the life that other people expected of me. We know that's what we're all going to say. That's what people do say every single day while they're lying on their deathbed. So what I'm hoping is by trying to break down these concepts in a very easy to read and very practical way, I'm hoping that instead of waiting for our deathbed to have those regrets, maybe we can just start to make subtle shifts in our daily life, in our weekly life, maybe not a complete life overhaul, but just subtle things that are going to get us much more aligned. So we're going to get that happy ending one day that we already know that we're going to want. That's what's brilliant about your book. You know, normally when I'm doing a podcast interview, I like to read all the books myself as well and do all the research. And now I'll read someone's book and you kind of get the gist. Okay, this is what it's saying. And, you know, I kind of get to the personal stories. And But I found myself really indulging in, in your entire book because it's such a wonderful array of different aspects of living that I think a lot of people just take for granted. Like you talk about being time poor versus being time rich. You talk about the criticism, you talk about the social media, your famous social media fast that you do every year. And there's so much, but we've reached the end of the time and I want to, I want to respect your time, but I do have one question. I watched an old interview of yours and the interviewer asked you, if people could do just one thing to be healthier, to be better, you mentioned sleep. And I'm just wondering if that's evolved now that you've done the research for this book as the one thing that people can do to improve their life. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder what interview that was. And you know, my thoughts have definitely evolved over the years. It was your Tom Bilyeu interview. Was it? Yeah. I mean, of course, sleep is very important, but I wouldn't make that my one thing today, if I'm honest. Of course, it's different for everyone, right? Everyone's got different priorities, different lifestyles. Having said that, the one practice that I truly believe would help every single person live a happier, more content, more healthy life is a daily practice of solitude. I think in the modern world in which we live, there is nothing more powerful that can look like anything. It can be meditation, it can be journaling, it can be mindfulness. It can be breath work. It can be sitting with your cup of tea and coffee without looking at your phone or the news or the television. Some protected period of time each day where you're not getting inputs in from the outside world and you're allowing your innermost thoughts and feelings to come up. Because without it, light, you don't really know how you're feeling. You don't know yourself, right? So much of how we think now is basically what we've absorbed from all the content that we are consuming from Instagram, right? That you, you mentioned my famous social media fast. Yeah, I try and do this every summer where I, I go off completely, like usually in August because my kids are on their summer holidays and it's a beautiful time of the year for me to really unwind and be really present and do some fun stuff with my family where I'm not thinking about work. And yet one of the things I find in that timeline is I start to realize what I think about the world, what I think 
not what I've been fed on my Instagram grid and my feeds, right? It's like, oh, so much of this group think that goes on is we don't even know what we think anymore. And so the answer to that question today has definitely evolved. I think a daily practice of solitude would help, frankly, anyone. And if you've never done it before and you're a bit scared, okay, just make it really, really small. Even start with five minutes a day. And I promise you will start to feel stuff and experience stuff that you didn't feel before. And that in turn is going to help you make better decisions in your life. And it also has that ripple effect thing that you talked about. Like when you go off social media for five or 10 minutes, you realize how much more time and how much more attention you do have to share and spread and spend with other things and other people. Yeah. So that's it, man. That, that would be my one practice. And that also echoes in my own life. Yes, I do prioritize sleep, sure. but. The thing I probably prioritize more than anything is that morning routine, actually, because even if I've had a bad night's sleep or I've got to bed a bit later than I wanted, that morning routine time for me changes everything. I'm a better human being when I do it than when I don't. It's that simple. Beautiful, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on to the show and sharing your experience and being, again, so open and transparent with your own life. And I just want to acknowledge all of the focus and uh, determination you've had to have over the years. We didn't even talk about your son and that whole situation, but that's been well documented out there. You, you said that, told that story on a thousand podcasts. So I encourage everyone to listen to your show, listen to your other interviews, and definitely pick up this book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. That has some wonderful photos too. I mean, you you could have been a model <laughs> back in the day. You're nice. So, and says you, yeah. Says so, so, so <laughs> it's you know that honestly is I'm very lucky. Like the way my publisher in the UK and in America publish these books is really beautiful. Like it really is. Together, we really work hard on the design, and I know we finished just briefly. Like I work really hard on these books to make them fun and easy to read. It's easier to write a longer book. It's harder to cut, compress. And I was pretty ruthless with myself on this book. I kept cutting, I kept cutting. So now you've made this point. And the nicest feedback I get as an author like, is when people say, and they often say, is it, oh, it's fun to read. I couldn't put it down. And that's what really drives me. I want to make health accessible to everyone. But to do that, you've got to make it fun, right? So why can't a health book be a fun read, be have nice storytelling in it, have nice narratives. Why can't it? Well, I think it can. And I challenge myself to make the books easy to read and fun to read because I'm not really writing it for my ego. I'm writing it to help people and therefore think, is the reader going to like this? Is the reader going to follow this? And they're going to apply it in their own life. And I think the way we design it also makes it super accessible for a lot more people at least. So yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that. It is I think it is a very beautifully designed book for sure. But your last book, to be fair, mate, was very very beautiful as well, right? It was had such a gorgeous design. And that was a, one of the big things that struck out to me initially. This is just an enjoyable experience to actually go through that book. Yeah, thank you. Are you working on the number 6 right now? I haven't actually started writing, but I have multiple notes on my MacBook where I've got ideas that I'm jotting down. It's, it's funny, as I finish one and you start to put the ideas out there, it's almost as if you've emptied your brain and now you've left a space for all these brand new ideas. So everywhere I go, like a train journey, I'm like, oh yeah, that's an idea. Oh, 
you know, I've got. Well, I've now got you my... see the world in books, you know, yeah, you've written exactly. so many. That's everything that, that you, you experience, like, oh, this would be a great book or this would be yeah, a part exactly. of a great book. Exactly. So I haven't got a coherent idea yet, but I've got lots of different ones. So I need to try and find what's the umbrella which fits some of these ideas. But I'll let you know when I've got it. But I will be working on a book six at some point for sure. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, man. And I look forward to crossing paths with you again very soon. Are you going to come to the US to do any promotion? Yeah, I hope so. I probably can't get out before the summer, but I'm hoping later in the year to come out. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. Really looking forward to it. I'll definitely, uh, well, if you're around at the time, I'll let you know. We can maybe meet up and do one of these in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. All right, brother. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy. Thank you again for tuning into my conversation with Dr. Chatterjee. You can pick up a copy of his new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, everywhere books are sold. And you should definitely follow Dr. Chatterjee on social media. It's simply at Dr. Chatterjee, and that's D-R-C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-E-E. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, We've got an incredible archives of interviews with other luminaries, such as Ed Milet, director Ava DuVernay, spoken word artist Saul Williams. We've got author Stephen Pressfield, chef Marcus Samuelson, and many others who share the story of how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com show. If you go to that page, you'll see a drop-down menu at the top of the page where you can search past episodes by specific subjects like people who've taken leaps of faith, people who've overcome financial struggles, people who've navigated health challenges. In case you're going through one of those things, you can get a list of people who've also gone through those things and you can see how they navigated those situations and hopefully get inspired to navigate your situation in a better way. You can also watch these podcast interviews on my YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and just search Light Watkins Podcast, you'll see a playlist of all of the podcasts. So that way you can put a, a face to their story. And then if you like hearing the raw, unedited versions of these podcasts, you can find that in my Happiness Insiders online community. All you do is you go to thehappinessinsiders.com and you join the community and you will have access to all of the unedited versions in addition to my 108 day meditation challenge and there's also 108 day movement challenge and a bunch of other challenges and master classes all geared around your inner work and becoming happier inside hence the name the happiness insiders one way to support this show is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly. It's actually surprisingly quickly. <laughs> you just glance down at your device right now. You'll see the name of the podcast in purple. If you're looking at this on the Apple Podcast app, which most people are, click the name of the podcast in purple. It's going to take you to the main podcast feed. You just scroll down past, I don't know, five or six of those previous episodes. You'll see a space where there are five blank stars. All you do is you tap the one on the right, the far right, and you've left a five-star review. So thank you very much in advance for that. I really, really appreciate it. It's an easy, free way to make sure this podcast comes up quickly in the search results when people are on the fence of not following their 
heart or their passion and they just need that little bit of inspiration and they go and they don't they've never heard about this show they just may type in i don't know inspirational podcasts and if you leave your review it increases the chances of this particular episode or this particular podcast popping up in that search feed and then they get to benefit from hearing what you just heard so thank you very much for that and otherwise i hopefully will see you back here next week with another story from someone just like me and you who've taken a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose and until then keep trusting your intuition keep following your heart keep taking those leaps of faith and you never know if you do that maybe you and i will be sitting down talking one day about your story thanks so much i believe in you have a great day you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.